Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, Chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job, We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. This past year has been a special one for me, as I've been able to wrap up my last two semesters of Mercer Law classes, while also kicking off my first year in seminary at Mercer's McAfee School of Theology. One of the classes I've been able to experience that intersects both law and theology is a class called Restorative Justice, taught by Professor Melissa Browning. In this class, we focused on social and restorative justice issues as they relate to the criminal justice system in America. We've discussed and touched on issues like the Black Lives Matter movement, the death penalty as it stands in America, and mass incarceration uh, as is experienced by many members of our U.S. population. I've asked a fellow McAfee Seminary student to help me co-host each podcast in this short series that we'll be doing on restorative justice. My first co-host today is Amanda Joy Washington. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Fabiani. Thanks for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Uh, As one of my classmates uh, and uh, members of our team, uh, I know that you'll be able to be a great co-host today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we introduce our guest? I am Amanda Washington from Washington, D.C. I am a first-year seminary student attending McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. Uh, My focus is community development, and I'm so excited to be co-hosting with you today, Fabiani. All right. Well, glad to have you, Amanda, and welcome. For today's show, we welcome Ruby Beth Beautycant, a law student, organizer, and activist. Beautycant bases her work on the idea that humans should be free from state and interpersonal violence. She is wrapping up her first year at City University School of Law in New York City. This summer, Beautycant will be working with the Center for Constitutional Rights as part of their Ella Baker Summer Internship Program. Before her legal education, Beauty Kent worked for the Center for Court Innovation as a anti-gun violence organizer, organizing to save our streets in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, at the Crown Heights Community Mediation Center. Beauty Kent is a graduate of Wesleyan University with a BA in African American Studies and American Studies concentrating on race and law. Beauty Kent is originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and as I mentioned, lives in Brooklyn. So welcome. Ruby Beth. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really, really excited to have this conversation today. Uh, We're excited to have you, Ruby Beth. And what do you think of when the term restorative justice or social justice comes into parlance? What what does that trigger for you? Wow. Um, Well, the first thing I would say it triggers for me is kind of a big idea of healthy communities. So for me, that looks like neighborhoods and spaces where people feel comfortable to come and go and are free from fear of violence, either in their homes or outside of their home. And that's 
that's a very big goal and something that um, I know a lot of people dedicate their work to, to achieving. But when I think about what justice really means and what restorative justice really means, it's about the idea of making things whole, right? So restore meaning having something return to wholeness instead of, um, you know, maybe using punitive ways of, of handling problems. So I really think of healthy communities. I think of people being able to move around freely. And I think of, um, of not living in fear. So before you went to law school, you worked on some of these issues uh, through the Center for Court Innovation, as I mentioned. Uh, you worked um, in anti-gun violence matters. And how would you say the work that you did in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, relates to restorative justice or social justice issues? Sure. Um, so the work that we did and that is still absolutely going on in Crown Heights is dedicated to this idea that people actually are not interested in violence. Um, it's, it uses a public health model to talk about violence, pre- predominantly with people who are actively involved in violence currently. So one of the things that we often would start with is this idea that we don't have to live with violence, which is a, a pretty lofty idea and something that, you know, is taken on as issue in philosophy, definitely in theology, also in law. Um, But we started with this idea and the model that we were basing our work off of started with this idea that most people, when they wake up, do not want to be involved in violence before they go to sleep that day. And the idea that we know to be true, which is that people are not born violent, right? Violence is a learned behavior. So if you start there, it's a lot easier to think through how to develop programs for people who have found themselves involved in violence, but who um, are interested in alternatives to violence, people who really are looking for a way to support their families, support themselves, and have found through different models, either, you know, in their communities or in larger society, that violence is is a way to do so. When in fact, you know, they're still just as sleepless at night being scared about violence affecting their lives and their loved ones as um, other people are of them committing violence. So it's, it's kind of a complicated notion, you know, that, that we can actually intervene in some of these violent um, communities and we can, we can offer people alternatives. But at the same time, I actually find it to be a very simple idea. So going off of that kind of work, I, I personally, time and again, was working with um, a lot of young people who were interested in, in ending gun violence in their communities, and they were tired of hearing gunshots on their street when they're trying to sleep or when they're trying to study. Um, they're, they're tired of losing friends and family to gun violence. So I was working with a lot of young people who, who were dealing with that in their everyday lives. And then um, I, I kept noticing time and again that we were just coming up against the criminal justice system. And so that that's kind of personally for me, what led me towards, towards law school, um, finding that time and again, a lot of these issues were intersecting with the criminal justice system. And then also I would say that's kind of what led me to learn more about restorative justice 
in looking for alternatives to the justice system that we have now. In our restorative justice class, um, we read Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow. And in the book, Alexander writes that in at least 15 states, blacks are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate from 20 to 57 times greater than that of white men. Even though research shows that African-Americans are no more likely to use or sell drugs than Caucasian Americans. She points out that one in three black males will serve time in jail or in prison in their lifetime. Now, these statistics are appalling, but what's more interesting are people's stories. Uh, Ruby Beth, how has mass incarceration affected you and your community? Wow, that's a great question. And I do think there's a lot to be said for, especially when you're trying to change public opinion about something as, as huge as incarceration. Oftentimes, stories are the way that we kind of humanize each other. So I appreciate that, that lens on that. Mass incarceration destroys communities. It absolutely has changed the landscape of black communities in the United States completely. In terms of in terms of some of the stories that I feel comfortable sharing, I often will try to make sure that I'm not sharing other people's stories unless I have permission. But I in my work in Crown Heights, I started the Youth Organizing to Save Our Streets program with a dear friend of mine named Marlon Peterson, who grew up in Crown Heights and then was incarcerated for over 10 years, in, including absolutely all of his 20s. Marlon is someone who has always been interested in community building, even when he was a kid, um, and grew up absolutely surrounded by violence in his, in his neighborhood and got swept up in a lot of that violence, which is what landed him in prison for so long. He, once he got, actually, well before he got out, he he became really involved in the lives of a lot of the young people in his neighborhood. He started a letter-writing program with um, an elementary school in Brownsville, and Brooklyn, just a couple neighborhoods over from Crown Heights, and um, worked with them very specifically to to encourage young people to seek alternatives to violence. And when he got out of prison, he became a violence interrupter with the program that we used to work with and actually did interventions on the street with people who were contemplating using guns um, to encourage them not to. And then we started the youth organizing program together. So just as an example of the way that mass incarceration destroys communities and individuals, you know, that's someone who could have been doing this work for a lot longer um, in the neighborhood he grew up in had he not been in prison for so long. Um, mass incarceration just isn't working. It doesn't work. I I kind of joke sometimes, um, you know, we tried it. <laughs> it doesn't work. It, it destroys communities. It destroys people's lives. Um, and it's, I think, you know, I'm I'm very grateful that it's becoming a much more national conversation. It's entered into this current presidential election. It's, it's on the forefront in a way that it hasn't been for many, many years, um, which I'm very thankful for. But, uh, but at its core, it's still every single day destroying, destroying communities. So specifically as someone who's in law school right now uh, and is looking at um, the future, right, your professional opportunities, how do you hope to continue to shine a light or, 
um, work in, in this area after you graduate? Sure. Well, I think especially for those of us who came to the law because of an interest in public interest work, um, it's really important to know on local or, or even on the national level that when you're doing public interest work or specifically for the Black Lives Matter movement, if you're doing movement lawyering, movement work, um, that it's really not about the lawyers. <laughs> um, and in, in most successful lawyers who work with within movements um, are the ones who are hanging back, which is not something that lawyers are traditionally trained to do. But uh, time and again, we've seen when lawyers actually are helpful to movements, the organizers are doing the leading and then the lawyers are doing the legal work. So, um, you know, obviously lawyers were incredibly important in, in the late 50s and early 60s and clearly with the passing of the 64 Civil Rights Act, but they weren't the ones who came up with it. You know, lawyers weren't the people who were trying, strategizing and figuring out, um, okay, should we focus on voting? Should we focus on uh, public accommodations? You know, all those different kinds of questions that that come with the strategy of doing uh, organizing work for movements. So one of the things that I feel strongly about is that the legal education helps, and, and I, I feel very lucky that, I, that I'm able to, to study the law right now. Um, but in terms of after graduation, I'm, I'm really hoping to focus on putting my energy in places that it's actually helpful. Um, I, I feel really strongly about not not taking over movements, especially from a legal perspective, when oftentimes the things that work are grassroots movements and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I really think transformative justice and restorative justice is the direction that especially our criminal justice system is going and needs to be going. And lawyers need to not get left behind. Um, the law and the way that law is taught is absolutely anything but intersectional. It's completely siloed into different doctrines and there's there's traditionally not an acknowledgement of the overflow of realities where whether it's the intersection of poverty and the justice system or racism in the justice system. Um, and restorative justice really flies in the face of that and asks that people integrate humanity and holistic ideas into something as siloed as the criminal justice system. And I, I really do think that's the direction things are going. Um, so I feel strongly that folks who are in the legal world who, who want to work on that need to acknowledge those intersections. Let's talk about some of that movement work you are mentioning. One that we hear a lot about is, black, is the Black Lives Matter movement. How would you respond to someone who says all lives matter? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's definitely been something that I've had a lot of people say to me. Um, and one of the first ways I respond is, is with a little bit of humor. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a firm believer that, the, uh, that social movements should be fun. So I've really appreciated a lot of the silly memes that have come out about that. You know, there was one great one from a comedian who was saying, um, you know, would you run into a into a cancer benefit and scream all diseases matter, for example? I liked that one. I thought that was funny. Um, so I think that the place that, that that's coming from for a lot of people is this idea that um, that they're being more inclusive. But the reality, and and I think some of the statistics that you shared really highlight that reality. Um, is that this is a movement that is focusing on 
on the erasure of black suffering in the United States. So it's a movement that's really bringing to light the extreme poverty, the extreme racism that is a really big part of American culture and the, the specifically extreme racism that's targeting black people. So absolutely this, this has had it had central to it, the, the killing um, that has become so widely known. Um, but really it's a much broader conversation about where we are in the United States in terms of anti-black racism. And that's a conversation that's been silenced for a really long time um, because of things like formal equality and some of the laws that we have on the books that, that do make things look more fair. Um, but the Black Lives Matter rally cry is really about the fact that it's not okay that people are dying. It's not okay that people are living in poverty and that it doesn't affect everyone. You know, the, the disparate um, sentencing, the disparate prison populations and the disparate numbers of people who are being killed by police officers and vigilantes is affecting black people. And that's, that's really how I would respond. Um, if, if we were at the point where we could be saying all lives matter, that would be great, but we're not there. We haven't, we haven't earned it yet. So I find the all lives matter um, kind of response to be really trying to, trying to shift the focus away from what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. Just to, to build on that a little bit for, for law and graduate students alike who aren't uh, involved with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, as much, you know, a lot of what we see on uh, on TV or, or hear uh, in the news shows a strategy from the BLM movement that that focuses on disruption. Why, why do you think disruption has been kind of the go-to uh, method for a lot of activists in this area? And and what's what's the goal of that? And, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Disruption is a tactic. Uh, it's something that's been used for many generations in many different parts of the country. Um, and I think that the goals of disruption are definitely awareness. There's a lot to be said for the idea that as a Black person, when you hear about another Black person being shot and killed without any type of uh, formal response, either by the police or by the justice system, it, it can feel almost absurd to be asked to continue with your life as if everything is okay when it can feel like the walls are crumbling down around you. You know, I had, I had a, a very dear friend confide in me after Michael Brown was killed that it, it made her question whether or not she wanted to have children because she was scared. And that's, that's a whole aspect of your life that now comes into question and the reality is that not everyone feels that way, right? So there's a lot of people who don't feel unsafe when a Black person is killed because they're not Black. So the disruption is a way to force the conversation and say, things don't just get to continue here. This isn't business as usual when we are in a crisis of feeling like people are being taken away from us without any kind of... Um, accountability for that, for that absence. So, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with different folks about disruption. I think some people find it to be um, impolite 
at, at, you know, the mildest, just to use some of the milder words people have used uh, to talk about it. But, um, but I really think it's, it's a way to force a conversation open a little bit to say, my life isn't continuing as normal because of this. And so I would appreciate if we could have a larger conversation and no one's life gets to continue as normal until we deal with this as a community and as a country. So if a speaker at a disruptive event were to actually cede the floor to a BLM activists, are they or are you ready to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the other the other important thing to remember about this movement is it's made up of a lot of individuals. So I think that um, it depends. You know, I've I've been to rallies in Atlanta, for example, where people have been absolutely given the opportunity to speak when they were protesting or disrupting and been able to really convey absolutely powerful messages of of justice and and what actual justice might look like for them and how we need to shift focus to really, you know, unify and come together around some of these issues. But oftentimes the disruption is in and of itself the goal um, that, for example, a political rally, people might feel like doesn't speak for them and doesn't speak to their issues. And therefore it feels hard for them to even let it proceed as normal. So in cases like that, you know, it might not be actually about who's going to then get the mic. Um, It might just be about, sitting with that discomfort of this doesn't speak for me. I, I need a different, a different outlet for, um, for these conversations. So we were able to go into a little bit about Black Lives Matter, and, and that's just uh, just part of this this uh, greater restorative justice conversation for for law students and theology students, grad students, college students um, who would like to learn more about uh, what restorative justice means, um, how the criminal justice system uh, works today in America. What would you uh, say are, are smart things they could do to both educate themselves and maybe help build a better system uh, professionally? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think, you know, you mentioned a couple of the great texts that have come out recently. <laughs> the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is a wonderful resource. Uh, it's really an incredible, incredible work of art in terms of research and writing. And I think that's a great place to start for people who are interested in just learning more about these issues. And then um, restorative justice has started, you know, popping up in, in on college campuses, uh, which I think is a great movement. And I would, I would seek out those resources. I would seek out classes. I would push your administration to have more classes about these issues. Um, you know, I know personally, I know a couple of um, folks who work with young people in schools in New York City who have implemented restorative justice programs within their schools um, that replace traditional discipline programs. So this isn't theoretical anymore. You know, this isn't something that is only happening in academic spaces. This is a really real way that people are are looking at their lives and and interested in doing holistic um, harm reduction techniques that that make people feel whole instead of suspending people from school or sending them to jail. Um, So I would ask around about those those types of things. And then, you know, I just, I feel so lucky to be um, in this generation, in this internet age. There's so much out there. There's cartoons about restorative justice. There's books, there's uh, videos that teenagers have made themselves. Um, there's just so much out there um, 
that can literally start at, at Googling things. So I'm really, I've learned a lot that I know about these issues from doing that. Um, and then seeking out, obviously, for those who are interested in activism, seeking out local groups is, is a great way to go. But I think start, especially as students, starting with research is, is always a good bet. Can you tell us who your legal heroes are? Oh, wow. Um, well, my number one legal hero is definitely uh, Ella Baker, who did not have a traditional legal education, but absolutely focused on this idea of participatory democracy and focused on this idea that um, that really the people who are the most affected by the issues are the ones who should be leading the causes. So she was very interested in, in uh, decentralizing movements so everyone has a voice. Um, and, and she was a force. So I, I definitely think about her a lot when I'm, when I'm studying these issues and also when I'm out on the street. Well, what, what's something, you know, you've been in law school and uh, I know you're working really hard. I, I'm uh, here at the, uh, the tail end, seeing the sunset, uh, graduation a month <laughs> away. For me, uh, I know you're, you're wrapping up your, your first year. What, what's something that you've learned in law school that isn't necessarily law-related that, that you think you're going to be able to continue into your career? That's a great question. Um, something I've learned that I kind of think goes in the face of, of a lot of the advice that people get is you can do this. <laughs> um, I had a lot of recent law grads tell me, oh, it's impossible. The work is impossible. There's no way to do it. And I was, and I was kind of sitting there like, wait, didn't you do it? Um, it's very, it, it obviously is as, as grueling as people say, but it's also doable. Um, and one of the things that I feel like has been unique to my experience, but also that has made it very possible is a lot of collaboration with my with my classmates and and working through things together and making sure we're all caught up and we're all able to to finish strong together, um, which is something that I do hope to take with me in both in activism but also in career. This is a question asked of nearly every guest on this podcast. What would you say is your life's motto? In other words, how would you put your calling into words? Well, something that I think fits quite well for our conversation and especially for the intersection of law and theology is to look for good in every human that you interact with. And that's hard (laughs) at times. (laughs) But I think that at the end of the day, if we're really truly doing that, things like restorative justice and things like Black Lives Matter and, and activists endeavors are, are simpler. Um, if we're really looking for humanity in people and we're really looking for not throwing away the key on people, um, it, it makes it easier to do this work. It makes it easier to do legal work and, and it makes it, uh, makes it better. I'm, I'm better at my job and I'm better at studying when I'm, when I'm really keeping that close to the heart. Um, so that's something that I, I do try to take with me, which is, you know, something that I feel was instilled from my communities growing up. Um, and again, it's not always easy, but, but I think at my best, that's what I'm doing. 
Well, Ruby Beth, uh, thank you for uh, doing that uh, right now through this podcast, through the work that you're doing as a law student and as an activist. And thanks for a great conversation with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate being here. Besides uh, uh, finding you um, uh, online and the things that you're doing, you have a Twitter handle that we could reach out to you at? Yeah, of course. People can find me at, at Ruby Beth, R-U-B-Y underscore B-E-T-H. It's my first name, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. All right. Very good. So those are some good ways that our listeners can uh, get in contact with you. Uh, thanks so much, Ruby Beth. We really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to this show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also tweet at ABALSD and use the hashtag LawStudentPodcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte. And I'm at AJoy Writes It. Not a bad co-host for the day, huh, guys? We're signing <laughs> off. Thanks, everyone. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash lawstudent. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.